you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Luke chapter 14? Luke chapter 14, thank you, uh, those who led us in worship today. Luke 14, I think if you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it should be page 602-602. Whenever you accept an invitation to, to come to a meal for the very first time, so you've never, never had a meal with someone, whether it's you know, they come into your home, you go to their home, or you, you meet them at a restaurant. You never know exactly how that first meal is going to go. A lot of different ways it can go. It could be that you're, you're around your kitchen table, dining room table, and you find yourself like two or three hours later, like, where is the time gone? Because you enjoy the company you, you really find in that meal you've you made a new friend and like you identify in so many ways. And so that certainly is one way a meal with a new person could go. There are other ways, right? We've probably all had those, maybe those dinners where you're, you're just ready for it, like to kind of wrap up. You've covered all the things you have in common in about the first three minutes. And you're wondering like, where do we go from here? And there's these long, awkward pauses. There's this disagreement of how you see the world. I mean, we've, we've, we've all been in, in situations like that. It's interesting in the Bible that out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke records pretty regularly Jesus encounters over meals. So over and over again in Luke, Jesus is, is at the dinner table. He's having a meal with somebody. And some of those get very, very interesting very quickly. I want to read a portion of scripture where we're talking about an, an encounter with Jesus. And I, I want to read a passage of scripture that really all takes place at one meal of Jesus. And it begins in verse 1 of Luke 14 and goes actually a little while. But I, I think it's going to be helpful for us to see all this happened at one meal. So there's several different interactions, but it all happened at one meal. So can, can we... Can we turn our, our eyes to verse 1, Luke chapter 14, and let's hear from God's word. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and, and dropsy is this condition where we, we don't refer to that as much, but it's a condition where you get fluid and the fluid builds up and it's hard to release that. And so Jesus responds to the lawyers and Pharisees. These are not experts in like criminal law. These would be experts in religious law. Pharisees, he asks a question, is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And he said to them, when, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, just go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they they can't repay you. And you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those that had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Uh, Please have me excused. Another said, I I bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I married a wife and I can't come. The servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there's room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The setting is a meal and Jesus, Jesus is correcting This encounter of Jesus is a a very confronting one and and a corrective one. I I, I just kind of pause long enough to recognize if Jesus, if kind of thinking about Jesus only confirms the opinions you had anyway, I don't think you're reading Jesus right. At some point, he's going to correct. At some point, he's going to confront you with a way of looking at the world that you hadn't thought of. And so just be, be wary if... You only read Jesus through the lens of, yeah, he seems to always agree with me. I, I don't think Jesus functions that way. I don't think we're, we're doing our homework if we only see him that way. Jesus confronts, but he also gives this vision of, of what he, how he sees the world and what he's come to bring, a, a world that is true and real and eternal and good, life in God's kingdom. So I want us to look at these, both the encounter where he confronts and the parable where he kind of gives the vision of what, what life should really look like. So he's at the, at the table, and at the table there is this interaction that Jesus has with the lawyers and the Pharisees, and they show up, according to verse 1, they're showing up really with an agenda that doesn't have any grace. They're trying to catch Jesus. Maybe he says something, maybe, I mean, we live in the, the season of gaffes and one off comment will be in the 24-hour news cycle, gotcha moment, oh, he said that, let's, let's embarrass Jesus, and that's exactly what they're there for. There's no agenda uh, of grace in anybody's mind, it seems like, at that meal. And Jesus, in the midst of where there is a, an agenda without grace, Jesus asserts authority, but it's a special kind of authority. It's compassionate authority. It's compassionate authority. 
They're trying to find Jesus saying something wrong. And Jesus is pressing, pressing authority. And it ends with, every, with, with the crowd frustrated and silent because they don't know what to say. And a man ends up being healed. You know, it's one thing to use the authority. So Jesus had it. Jesus had the authority. Heaven and earth was given to him. So, I mean, he has authority. It's one thing to use your authority to bully and to make sure people cower in fear. It's another thing to use your authority to bless And some of you, by God's grace, have been given positions of authority. And the way of Christ would be, when you have that authority, you can use your authority, but use it to bless, not to smash people, not to have them all tremble and and, and run from you. You You want to bless those, especially those that are just in need of someone showing kindness, especially someone in power. That's the way the world often does not work. But how different it is when Christians have authority and we follow the way of Jesus. So Jesus asserts this compassionate authority and he presses in like, Does anybody have a right to heal this man? Is that okay on the Sabbath? Can we do that? Is it okay? Is it lawful to heal this person? He doesn't wait for their answer. He goes and heals them. So Jesus is saying, not only do I have the right to do it, it is right to do it. It is right. And if you had a son that you needed to get out of a well, and if you even had an animal that was in a pit, you would get them out. How much more should I have done this? This was the right thing to do. He's asserting authority. There's no, there's no grace being shown to him, but he is showing great grace. He's ready to help those in their time of need. I think of Jesus is human, and so he's regularly confronted with people who have problems over and over and over again. And every, every time he's showing this level of compassion. He's showing this mercy. Every person he meets, he's extending love to them. Jesus persists in carrying the good news of the kingdom that Jesus brings is that those who are in need are welcomed in his presence. I don't know that we always feel that. You know, we feel like I I need to clean up my act and then I can be in his presence or even go to church or feel like I'm, I'm somewhat okay in God's sight. But Jesus makes sure we realize that if we are in need, we're welcomed in his presence. People regularly walked into his presence in need and walked away transformed. Church, I think we, as the body of Christ in Newark, Delaware, should reflect this aspect of Jesus. When people come into this presence of Jesus Christ that we call the church, when people have needs, whether they're physical needs or whether they're spiritual needs, if they're far from God, if, if they're far from God, should we say, actually, you stay away far, you know, you stay away from God, you stay away from religion, you stay away from all this. Actually, no, that's not the, not the way Jesus would do this. He would welcome people into his presence. He would invite them to come. And so Jesus, Jesus shows us something very, very powerful in how he uses his authority as he moves to serve them, moves to help them. And may, may, man, may Ogletown have that same heart. There's something else going on at the dinner party. Because we read in verse 7, Jesus has observed something. So they're watching Jesus. Jesus is watching them. And one thing he notices as the guests come in, they're finding their seats and, and they're finding the, the, the special seats. There is this environment uh, of craving for personal elevation. If you sit in the, like the, the VIP section, which would probably be close to the host, and that's the section you want to sit in. Everybody will know, ooh, you're somebody. And so the people are coming in, and Jesus noticed they're going to those seats. 
And in the midst of that, Jesus calls for humility. In the midst of an environment where there's this hunger for personal elevation, Jesus calls for humility. He calls so just very clearly in, in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the main, main staple of Jesus' teaching. If you miss this, you've missed Jesus. Where he says again and again, if, if you want to be exalted, just prepare to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, in due time, God will exalt you. God will do the lifting here. It's an environment where people want to be noticed. Jesus gives some really common sense advice. You find it even in Proverbs. Like, don't, don't go to the front. Like, sit in the back. It's much better. It's much better than having to take the walk of shame where everybody goes, I know what they did. I guess they don't belong there. Nobody wants that level of social embarrassment. So in some ways, this is just wise advice. But I think more is going on than just wisdom. Jesus is pushing at where where do you see yourself fitting? Do you you think you get to go to the front of the line? Do you think I I deserve to be here? And it's it's one thing, you know, like probably many of us have done when you got seats to a ball game and you go, I think I'm going to sit down there. I don't have seats for that. I have seats in the nosebleed section, but I can sit there until I'm asked to move. And there's one thing to try to sneak into that. It's different. It's different when you think you belong there. This is my seat. And someone says, quite frankly, no, it's not. You can get up and go to the back. And if we, if we can sense like the social awkwardness of that, then actually there's more on the line when it's spiritual arrogance. Like eternal things are on the line. Not just feeling a little embarrassed. It's so easy when we feel powerful, got a little bit of money, Achieve something to kind of feel that. Being humble is very counter to what we want to do in those times. I mean, I'd say over the last, I don't know, five years, maybe decade, we've invented the word, the humble brag, right? The humble brag where you're really telling someone how good you are, but you, you cloak it in. I can't believe I got to. Whoever thought that I would? It's amazing. You'll never believe what happened. You know, and all this is cloaked with, like, I really feel humble, but, but no, but you're not fooling anybody in that. Everybody knows what's going on there. Even if you say you're hashtag blessed, you know, everybody knows, everybody knows what's going on there. And Jesus pushes in this, doesn't he? He calls it out as pride, doesn't it? All of our hints to drop the, oh, you'll, you'll never believe all the opportunities to kind of put us first. All the times where we like line ourselves up and we, oh, we would never go public with this, but we begin to kind of figure out where we fall in some sort of pecking order. Like who's the smart ones, who's the cool ones, who's the rich ones, who's the advanced one, who really has made something of themselves. And we begin to rank ourselves. We look at others and go, oh, I may not be at the top, but I'm at least in the top 12 percentile. I'll take it. So we, we, we process things. We do that a lot. And Jesus calls that out at the dinner party. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself, God is always on the side of those who humble themselves. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is always something we should pursue. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Someone said it very well. It's just thinking of yourself less recognizing there's a great big world. The gospel of the kingdom comes to those not who are rich, but those who are poor in spirit. 
Not those who are proud, not to those who count themselves better than others, but to those who count others better than themselves. It's okay. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to need God. It's okay to be vulnerable. Whoever humbles himself. So the dinner party's getting a little interesting at this point, right? Jesus has asserted his authority. He's called for humility. But there's this other thing going on that Jesus noticed. He notices, he calls attention to the master of the party who has the guest list and and the guest list of of who to invite. And in that culture, you invite someone and they actually now are in your debt because they have to invite you or they owe you some sort of social favor. So there's this environment of debts that have to be repaid. And so Jesus calls that out and speaks to the master uh, of the house. and, And he highlights something and that is the fact that generosity is something that should be blessed, not this whole system of debt repayment. Jesus blesses generosity. He's working in this against the couple mentalities that were present in his day. And I I believe are present in our day as well. Instead of debts and repayment, Jesus corrects our, who are we we going to invite? Kind of the A-list of you, 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 not you, not you, you. Okay, I think that's, I think that's about where I want to stop. Jesus, who should you be looking to, to, to invite? What would generosity look like? What would be miles away from the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours system of debt repayment? What would be the the opposite of treating people only for what you can get out of them. What would be opposite of that? And Jesus has this list of people. Go, go to those that can't do you any favors. Can't do you any earthly favors. Go, go to them. Include them. Once again, what if our church embodied this generosity that Jesus clearly blesses? What if our church embodied that sort of mindset? The gospel of the kingdom means that we recognize we stand totally in God's debt. We just sang about it. Now my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. When you recognize you are the debtor, it, it, makes, it, it governs your heart of trying to put anybody else in your debt. So Jesus blesses this generosity. I'm, I'm not sure how everything at that point was going over. It seems in verse, if you've got scripture in front of you, it seems in verse 15, there's someone that maybe is just the peacemaker that's wanting to settle things down. Maybe tensions are getting a little bit high at the party because Jesus has called out the, the guest list as well as the, the seats of honor. He's, he showed his authority, he's shown his authority. And so we've got a person in the crowd in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, and, and I kind of get the idea that this guy is the, the guy, he's going to bring everybody together. Well, one thing we can all agree on, guys, all, we can all agree, blessed is, the, blessed is the one who can eat in the kingdom of God. We, we'll all be blessed that day, won't we? And Jesus is not willing to let this go. This encounter with Jesus is going to be, continue to be more uncomfortable, but we will see more and more, this is what he's like. This is who Jesus is. It's one thing to tear down what others are doing. Jesus, as the Son of God, has every prerogative to tell us what's right and wrong. The one who can read hearts knows what's going on. It's another thing, though, to construct, like, this is, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And that's what Jesus does in the parable. 
That's exactly what he does. We come to the story. So the story that I read toward the end, it, it, it begins in verse 16, ends in verse 24. When you come to a story like that, Jesus is obviously using it as an analogy. We call it a parable. The point of the parable is not to like squeeze out every single little detail and go, this has to mean this, and this means this, and this means this, and this means this, where you have 20 different meanings. That's not the goal of any parable. At the same time, the reason why Jesus tells parables is there's a way that stories have of kind of just punching us in the gut that even if, if we were to give a PowerPoint presentation, it doesn't quite do it that way. So Jesus tells stories to really kind of bring meaning home. So what we shouldn't do is overread the parable. What we also shouldn't do is kind of go, oh, well, Jesus is just telling a parable that we all ought to be nice to each other. That, that, never, is, that never is the sheer meaning of Jesus' parable. It's always menting, he always means to inform us about something different that we might not otherwise get. So Jesus calls our attention to a feast, a banquet, in verse 16. And I think as we're understanding, okay, why, why does he use this analogy? Why talk about a feast or a banquet? Why compare what he's doing to the feast or banquet? I, I want us to dig deep into this story because I think it's a significant one. As Jesus tells us this story about the feast, I think we're reminded of this, that the mission and message of Jesus comes to us as a great invitation. Over and over again in this chapter, the word invite comes up. Invite, invite, invite. So the story is about this great feast, but the story goes beyond just the feast. It goes to the invitation. Who's getting invited? Jesus intends for us to understand his invitation as the, the mission he's on, what he came to do, and his message. The message, what, what he says. So his mission, what he came to do, and his message are, are, are a great invitation to us. A great invitation to what? Well, well we, we peel back deeper into who Jesus said he was and the descriptions of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and we get the picture. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the water of life. Jesus said, Jesus said that I, I am the good shepherd that lays down his life sacrificially for the sheep. John would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would say, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What are all those words? Those are words of an invitation. If we weren't clear on that, Jesus would say, I'm the door. I'm the gate. I'm the access point. If you want to get to God, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you come through me. And so here we see the, Jesus picturing, picturing this great feast and, and an invitation goes out. It's an invitation from God. It's an invitation embedded in the mission and message of Jesus. It's come to me, all those who are weary, burdened with life, burn out on life. God's a generous God. Come to this banquet, come to this feast. So why does he, why does he talk about a feast? I mean, there's all... Jesus had the world at his disposal. Why does he come back two times? He talks about this, this feast and compares the kingdom of God, the new heavens, new earth with, with his feast. Why does, he, why does he make that comparison? When I think of a feast or a banquet, I recognize that feasts and banquets 
think of a wedding reception or this you know, great big party, rarely are those being thrown in war-torn areas. When, when you're worried about your, your own safety and there's risk like that involved, there's really no time to throw a party. When I think of feasts or I think of a banquet, it, it does appeal to the senses. So you begin to, you begin to think through the, the, the sights of seeing food well prepared and the, the smell, the aroma of food, and you, you know, taste is affected. And even, even being at a feast, you're going to hear some sounds at a, at a banquet and, and you're going to engage even touch. And so all these senses, it's a very real experience. I think Jesus gives us this analogy of a banquet to talk about a when you, when you go to a banquet, there's a relationship with others. You don't have a banquet by yourself. When he talks about a feast, that reminds us there's more than enough. Most feasts you go to, there's generally more than, more than you could eat. When you think of a feast, often some occasion shapes the meal. So there's a, we're having a feast because or for, this is what our family does or this particular holiday, or, or we wanted to celebrate this. Well, it's no wonder Jesus uses the feast. What a great analogy. When we're in his presence forever in eternity. Well, he's right to describe it as a feast because we're free from, free from war and sin and death and sorrow. Jesus calls it a feast, and lest we think heaven, the kingdom of God, new heavens, new earth, Lest we think that's something unreal, it's very real. I think our senses will be more engaged than they've ever been engaged on this earth. It's a very real thing to be in the presence of Jesus. He calls it a feast because whatever we think about the, the next life, it surely will include all the people who have followed Jesus. Before he came, after he came, all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, all those who have followed him. We think of that feast, that heavenly feast, nothing runs out. There's no lack. There's no desperation. Forever, we're, we're centered on the fact, behold, the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. In some ways, the Lord's Supper is just a taste of that, isn't it? It's just a taste because it's saying there's this feast that brings us together. We really celebrate it in part, helpfully reminding us this is only just a taste because there's another day, another feast we wait. Do you see God's invitation in this way? Do you see an invitation? Do you see his love as an invite to you? An invitation to every one of those aspects of the feast. I love the way that invitation is reflected in a call to worship I found. It's, it's from a church in Nashville, and I think they actually adapted it from a 10th president in Philly. But here's the call to worship to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. This church opens wide her doors with the welcome of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and a friend of sinners. What a great invitation. This is the invitation that that many of you have trusted in. You accepted that invitation by God's grace. What an amazing thing. What what's, stands out in this parable that Jesus told this story is that many will underestimate the weight of this invitation. Somewhat staggering 
that great invitation where many are invited, many will underestimate the weight of the invitation. The way it worked in that culture is it almost was a two-part invitation. So you kind of do the save the date. There's going to be a celebration coming. And then at the moment it's all prepared, you can't text everybody. So you begin to send the messengers and the runners and they all go out and say, it's time. Why don't you come? The food's ready. So that invitation goes out. And in the story, there are three reasons. You see the invitation go out in verse 17, but then the excuses come. Beginning in verse 18. They're lame excuses. So verse 1, there, there's this, you know, this, this or the, the first excuse, I think at verse, what is it, verse 18, the first says, you know, I bought a field and I got to go out and see it and so please have me excused. I, I can't make it because I really need to do something else and please, please excuse me. The next one's a little bit shorter. Yeah, I've got these uh, the five yoke of oxen and just excuse me. I won't be able to make it. The third one is even shorter than that. Yeah, I married a wife. Can't come. And if it sounds lame, that's exactly how it's meant to sound. What it's meant to sound like all these are, yeah, you know, I have that thing and I've got the stuff and I've, you know, I love, uh, don't get me wrong, I love to, but I can't, you know, I, maybe, maybe another time. And I, if, if it's meant to sound like someone's just making up stuff, it really, I mean, there are servants that could easily go see a field. Who buys a field with, without looking out? I mean, there's all sorts of avenues where you go, something's not right here. What's clear is they really don't want to go. Now is the time, and they go, I don't think now's the time. I got other stuff to do. Excuses are lame, and I think it boils down to something that really is revealed in this. Why do many underestimate the weight of this invitation? I think we can find out by asking two questions. Do do we think something's necessary, and do we think it's important? We think it's really critical. I mean, so they're, they're evaluating that invitation, much like if you got an invitation to a party of some sort. Do I sense this is life and death? Will it be okay to miss this? I mean, you begin to kind of go through that. You know, is this absolutely critical? Will a relationship be breached if I don't go? Does it really matter to me? What, what, will, it, will it have costs down the road that if I don't do this, it's just going to make life a, a real pain then? So, okay. You begin to, like, is it really, really necessary? So once you've reached that, or, well, it's not really necessary, then it becomes a question of, is this really important? Is it important to me? Do I really want to go? Or are there other things that would compete? Is there something that I would use that time to do, uh, that I'd actually rather do that, so I'm not going to go to that? And now we have value judge- judgments. Is it worth prioritizing it? Is, it? is it something I'm willing to sacrifice for? And in the end, how we answer those questions reveal, are we really interested in this invitation or not? And so they, to a person, say, nah, no thanks. I got, I got this thing. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to, I got this thing. Can't make it. Jesus uses that, I think, to call us to, what are we saying to this invitation from God? How we perceive the invitation makes a big difference. I was, yesterday, I was hanging out with uh, Canaan, our, our oldest son, and I had my phone, and so... Phone rings, and there's a number from California. And I generally have a category for when I see the number from California. You know what I do? I hit the red button. I don't need to... It can kick it to voicemail. I I, I don't need this. 
But what I told Canaan is, as it popped up, I said, I've won a cruise. And he kind of looked at me strange. So instead of hitting the red button, I hit the green button, then I hit the speaker button. And we listened, congratulations. Congratulations for participating in this survey. You have won a free cruise. All you have to do is whatever. And his, he looked at me like, how'd you know? I'm like, well, I got four of those this week. That's how I knew. And then I hit the red button because I could care less. I don't trust the source. It really was meaningless at that point. I wonder we, hear, we have the invitation of God. Come to the banquet. Ah, maybe that's too good to be true. Maybe there are other things that seem really more important, more real than that. Maybe it, it, we, it doesn't strike us as like so necessary that we answer that invitation. So important that we answer that invitation. So many end up not feeling the weight of it. You don't really value the invitation. When you think something's not real, you don't really take it seriously. But refusing this invitation has great consequences. In verse 24, it says, Jesus saying, I tell you, none of those men who, invite, who were invited will ever taste my banquet. Rejecting this one is different than hitting the little red circle on your phone. And you really don't feel like dealing with the telemarketer or some scam. The fact is, while many will underestimate the weight of this invitation, truly grace is on display when we accept the invitation. So, so my heartbeat today is not so much to talk about all the excuses. I, I would like for you to feel those and know those so that you see, is my heart going there? But I'd rather you recognize how much grace is on display as we accept this invitation. So all the negative responses, the pitiful excuses, they don't prevent a full banquet. Actually, so round one went out. Everybody said, I'm too busy. I got plans. But then another round goes out. And notice how grace is on display. It's going to people that live in the, it says the the streets and the lanes. So these are the people, not kind of the high society people, but those day laborers, those who are just working paycheck for to paycheck, trying to, trying to make ends meet. And they're, they're the ones off the main street, kind of working in the back alleys, just trying to sell something to feed their family. And, and the master says, go give them an invitation. I want them coming. Servant says, we've taken care of that. And then there's round three of the invitations go out and it's to the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And it's the, the highways and hedges. Keep going out. Go, go find who you need to find. When I think of the deep extension even into the countryside. So not on the main roads, off the streets and lanes, go even outside the city gates, bring people here. We are going to have, we are going to have a populated party. We are going to have a feast that is filled. I began thinking of what it means to be poor. And I think of that passage I read in first Corinthians, not many of you were rich and wealthy and famous when God called you, but we're poor. We're not rich when it comes to spiritually impressive Things. We're crippled. We're cut down in our ability to meet, meet where we need to, meet the spiritual quotas on our life. We're, we're blind. We don't see things spiritually like we should, and we're, we're lame. We're not able to walk with God on our own, and, and God knows that, and the generous heart of God says, and, and you are the ones I'm inviting. It makes us realize something. Those who are invited and accept that invitation are certain that it's been a gift, that they're even there. It's a true gift. You ever felt like, I sure didn't deserve this, 
I can't believe I'm getting it. I, I never deserve this. If you've ever looked at uh, a, a beautiful scenery, it's, uh, I, I never deserve to see this. If you ever, you've looked at your family and you realize how blessed you are, you say, I, I don't deserve this. Maybe you get to feel a little bit of what it is to be on the recipient, uh, receiving end of grace. They realize everyone that came to that feast would know that were not for grace, they wouldn't be here. This is no pay-to-play scheme. This is no work release. This is clearly an invitation of God's good grace to you to come. This is amazing grace. No one can enter the kingdom without the invitation of God. And when you realize you've been given that kind of invitation, I think worship changes. And I don't, I don't mean like worship the thing we do about 20 minutes before we have the teaching time. I mean all of life is worship. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Why do we do that? Because of the mercies of God that are in view in our lives. We recognize we have been given that invitation and it leads to a full throttle appreciation of it. We know we have been the recipients and so shouldn't that motivate us? That all of Newark should at least have the invitation. At least have the invitation of God. We could be the vehicles to extend it. Shouldn't all of Newcastle County, I mean, these are the things that should be going through our heart. We want, we want to extend that invitation of God. God's grace fuels our desire to share that good news. But even as we read this, it reminds us that no one can remain outside the kingdom except by his or her own deliberate choice. No, thanks, Lord. I'm too, I, I'm too busy. This invitation is one that calls for a response. Now is the time. Now is the moment. Now is the day. The invitation to come to him, to turn from all else. That you count on justifying yourself by. To turn from all that, to trust in him. Trust in his words. Trust in his work for you on the cross. This is the response. You say, what do I do with the invitation? You accept it. How do I accept it? You turn from everything else and you trust in Jesus Christ, his work for you on the cross. And then you, you follow him. You enter into a life of following him. And, and those who love him do what he says. They obey. Can I ask you to bow your head? I want us to think about that invitation. I want it to move, let it move us to worship. But it also may lead to, to some in this room. I, I don't know the hearts. I can't read minds, can't read hearts. But I would wonder in this, in this room, is there someone that God's been making very clear to you the invitation? And today's, your, today's the day you accept it. Today's the day you don't play games any longer. You trust in Jesus Christ. You turn from your sin and you trust in him. Today's the day you you let someone know that that's happened. Today's the day where the faith becomes real. Maybe God's been preparing you for this moment where you you trust and and you you go forward with him on this invitation that he's given to you. If that's your heart and you say, Curtis, I don't don't know how to respond to Jesus, I'd love for you to pray a simple prayer of asking the Lord, Lord, will you save me? I know I'm a sinner in need of your great grace. I trust in you, not in anything else. To rescue me, 
I place my life in your hands. And I follow you. That's something that's been on your mind. If that's some prayer that you know you've needed to pray for a long time, there's no magic words. I'd I'd sure love to talk with you about that. I know you've got perhaps friends that would love to have that conversation with you more about what it means to follow Jesus and accept this invitation. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice clearly, to be louder than all the others that it's Jesus has extended an invitation that you would draw many to yourself. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.